Please open the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I read to you verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God and Father in heaven, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering our frame that we are but dust, and having pity upon us like a good father pities his children, bless speaker and hearers to understand and remember these things, and to comfort one another with these words, and to live in light of eternity, forgetting all those things around us that distract us so often. We ask in Jesus' name and for your honor and glory forever. Amen. Let me read these three verses to you again with a slightly longer pause at certain places for you to understand that there are 13 expressions from the Holy Ghost that are truly glad tidings of good things. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Thirteen expressions of the Holy Ghost. I am incapable and impotent before this sentence to rightly declare it to you. And you are incapable of rightly hearing it. This is transcendent, stupendous, unbelievable information that the world does not know about and they hate even us knowing about it. We have come into this house this day for the mystery of the gospel. It is called the mystery of the gospel because it is unknown by natural men and is unknown by natural means. These are glad tidings of good things. 
they have outlawed this book in our institutions of learning. Without this book, what learning are they talking about? This is real learning. This deals with a man that was God in the flesh who was crucified and buried for our sins and rose from the dead, leaving the empty tomb that was just prayed. And by that, giving us proof and a guarantee and an illustration of how we shall be raised from the dead as well and guaranteeing to us an eternal inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven. These are stupendous facts. And they are in one sentence of our beloved brother Peter. And I hope that by God's grace, Lord, have mercy upon us, that you will remember these things, and that the light of this passage... Because this man, Peter, will write by the Holy Ghost that it is a light. The Word of God is a light and a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, that it will put everything else in your life in the shade. Because everything else in your life belongs in the shade. You have not encountered nor have you thought about anything this past week that can compare with what is contained in this sentence. Thirteen things. The United States of America outlaws this book in places where it ought to be highly regarded. Most Christians will not be hearing the Word of God preached phrase by phrase today. There will be the largest assembly and fastest growing in our nation with millions of followers reading his books, fawning before the grinning, effeminate Joel Osteen, who ten years ago wrote a book, Your Best Life Now. The only way that you can have your best life now is to be a reprobate. Because Christians, the best your life can be now is not very good in comparison to what is coming. The best life for a Christian is in the future. It is not now. The Bible describes... Man is born to trouble, like sparks fly upward. And this book, this epistle of 1 Peter is going to tell us in every chapter, and I'm not going to take the time to show you right now, but if you've read it, you already know about the suffering of Christians and the suffering of God's people. And the reason I am stopping today at verse 5, for more than the fact that I won't be able to get past it anyway, is because verses 6 through 9 are going to take up suffering right off the bat, the trials and tribulations and the fiery furnace that perfects our faith. Your best life now. This is what we must be weaned from. Our flesh wants to believe that. The world wants to tell us that. The devil wants to deceive us into believing that. And the devil has lots of minions that help him, like Joel Osteen. We want to understand that the best life is yet to come, and we want to live in light of that, like those martyrs that died in light of that, to obtain a better resurrection. This sentence is overwhelming to me. I am reduced to incompetence before its glorious statements. But I'll do the best I can and will trust the Lord to do anything because anything from Him is better than my best. And will trust Him to convince you of it. Let's take the first of these 13 wonderful 
expressions. Five in verse three, five in verse four, and three in verse five, all in one sentence given to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To bless God is to praise and worship Him for His attributes and to give thanks for His mercies. That is why when you get into Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where we were recently by God's providence, we read that those choirs burst forth with words like these. Blessing. Do you remember? Is one word enough for you? It's enough for me. Blessing. You say, but there's more. Oh, I know there's more. Blessing and honor and glory and power and riches and wisdom be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. A- Amen. That's appropriate. Amen. Oh, to be like David and to bless the Lord before the congregation of Israel. Oh, to be like David, the great worship leader of God Himself in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord. O my soul and all that is within me, bless His holy name. To bless God is to praise and worship Him for His attributes and to give thanks for His mercies. Do you delight in God like you should? Delight thyself also in the Lord, Psalm 37.4 tells us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us we are bound to give thanks always to God. And that's why we want to bless Him. And so Peter begins, the first word of the third verse should light us up. Blessing and honor and glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The text does not say that blessed was God, or blessed is God, or blessed shall be God. It says blessed be the God and Father calling us to worship by that choice of verb. Blessed be God. We should be blessing Him. And what follows here should cause us to bless Him. The text does not say, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that follows is based on the fact that Jesus Christ was assigned to us and we were assigned to Him. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the Lord Jesus Christ of all the earth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ of His people. Christ is the anointed Messiah of God. Jesus is Jehovah is salvation. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. When it says, Blessed be the God and Father, These are not two beings under consideration. This is one being in two relationships. He had the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has both of them toward us. He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forming Him in the womb of Mary, He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, forming Him in the womb of Mary. He is our God as Creator. He is our Father as Redeemer. He has adopted us, not just created us. He is both to us. In five different places in the New Testament, instead of the word and, will be the explicative word even. It will say, blessed be the God, even 
the Father. Because our God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is by that identification that we give Him a title that separates Him from all other gods. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ identifies Him as the unique Jehovah of the Bible that has a son named Jesus of Nazareth. God is the God of all men as their creator and sovereign divine ruler, but He is Father only to a few. And it is the combination that is wonderful, and it is the explanation of God as Father, or even Father, that should be comforting to us. So much more could be said about the blessing, but we have 13 things to look at. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of all that follows. All blessing comes from Him. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And no wonder when He gives an inheritance, there's no variableness in the inheritance He gives either nor shadow of turning because it's not going to fade away like everything else you will ever know or ever have in this world. But that is to come in a few minutes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you bless Him? Can you use Psalm 103 in this coming week? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me bless His holy name. Blessing. Blessed. He is worthy of all praise and thanksgiving for His attributes and His great mercies shown toward us, which are going to be designated in what follows. 1 Peter 1.3, which according to His abundant mercy. Number two of these 13 glad tidings of good things, or these are the good things and I give you glad tidings of them, which according to His abundant mercy in a manner agreeing with, consistent with, or answering to. Mercy is how God pours out the things that follow because we don't deserve them. And it's not just that we don't deserve them. We deserve the opposite of them. We deserve His eternal condemnation. Therefore, we define grace and mercy as demerited favor. We do not cheat the Lord of His glory by defining grace and mercy as unmerited favor, which would mean we're in some neutral state before Him. We define grace and mercy as demerited favor because He should drop us into hell, but instead He gives us an eternal inheritance in heaven with Himself. Praise God for His abundant mercy. It is not just a little mercy. It is not just some mercy. It is not bare mercy. It's abundant mercy. Overflowing mercy. Enough and more. Sufficient and then some. Abundant Mercy. Because what follows can only flow from abundant mercy. Paul would say of what's going to be number three in our list, that not by works of righteousness which we have done. See? It's by grace and mercy. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His 
mercy. He saved us for the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The mercy of God is according to His own will, not our will. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Of his own will begat he us. James 1.18 Of his own will. The mercy of God is according to his own will. And so the source is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the eternal designs of his everlasting counsel of grace, assigned the Lord Jesus Christ to us and us to him. And he's regenerated us in time after we were born the first time. We set ourselves against our Creator. We set ourselves against this blessed God in the Garden of Eden, choosing the devil as our father instead of him. And God should leave us there if he were only fair. I thank God that he's not fair. He's gracious and merciful. If he were fair, I wouldn't be here today. I would be somewhere else in the netherworld. But he's gracious and merciful. And I know my brother Jerry feels the same way. And Lord, our contest of who the worst sinner is, is not to glory in foolishness, but to glory in grace and mercy. Rather than bark against God for hating Esau, ask instead why God ever loved Jacob. Those that we encounter and try to share the doctrine of election with, they want to complain that it isn't fair that God hated Esau. We answer, it isn't fair that God loved Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel, but God loved him. Thank you, Lord. Let's keep our perspective correct. It's His abundant grace that they don't understand. Bear mercy. Listen, brethren. Bear mercy. Instead of abundant mercy, bear mercy would pardon the condemned rebel. So that we could stand on the street with our plastic bag and a few possessions, not knowing which direction to turn, and left there as an outcast in society to a degree for a while. It's more than pardon. It's more than pardon. Bare mercy would pardon the condemned rebel. Abundant mercy regenerates him and adopts him. Now that is abundant mercy. And I want us always to remember that. We deserve God's punishment. Instead, we get the adoption of sons where God becomes our Father. That is a huge difference. We're not neutral before Him. We're condemned rebels. But thanks be to God. Do you understand the facets of salvation? I've mentioned this very recently. The facets of salvation, I believe we have between 17 and 20 listed in a sermon that is on our website entitled The Facets of Salvation because God has chosen to describe salvation in other words than salvation. Like redemption. Like adoption. Like reconciliation. Like propitiation. Like pardon. Like ransom. Like sanctification. 
And they're wonderful to consider. You hold up the diamond of salvation and you turn it in the light of God's Word and you see the different choices that God has made of the different spheres of our life where He has worked on His glory for His glory and our deliverance by reconciling us, by ransoming us, by redeeming us. It's His abundant mercy. We never want to forget those things. Do we sing in songs of sublime adoration and praise? Ye children for Zion who press, break forth and extol the great ancient of days. His what? His rich and distinguishing grace. Thank you, Lord. I think I could say, and it doesn't mean very much, that my favorite hymn writer these days is John Kent. And John Kent wanted to be buried under a tombstone that had the words of that verse, of that song, written by another man over him in songs of sublime adoration and praise. Can you think of a word that is a sublime adoration and praise? Blessing! I'll I'll save you the time. (laughs) Blessing! Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again. The fact that you're sitting here this morning is proof that you were begotten once. The fact that you're sitting here this morning is not proof that you've been begotten twice. Once begotten men can sit here. Twice begotten men love this passage of Scripture. And by the grace of God, they embrace it and gird up the loins of their minds And savor it if you've been twice born. God has already shown Himself by the Holy Spirit in these words that He is the cause and source of the vital phase of our salvation in this text. We often think of the Holy Spirit as the source or agent of our regeneration because of verses like John 3.8, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. John 3, 5, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. But the Trinity is truly involved in all of our redemption. And so we want to submit to Scripture and allow what is being said here, that God and the Father hath begotten us again. And that makes sense. If He's doing the begetting, He should be the Father. If we're His sons, and we're getting an inheritance as His heirs, He should be the Father. And so He is in this text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Sometimes in Scripture, regeneration may be assigned to the Son, like John 5.25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And as we shall find even later in this chapter, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, we understand that to be the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ again. But here it is the Father, and we bless Him. 
for this stupendous change that He has made in us. We bless Him for the unbelievable act of giving us the nature of His children. We are the sons of God. As I have said to you before, if the world understood it, which they don't, the Bible tells us very plainly they did not recognize Him when He was here, and because they didn't recognize Him when He was here, they do not recognize us. If they had recognized Him, the princes of this world would not have touched Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8. through eight. Pilate and Herod would not have touched the Lord Jesus Christ if they had known who He was. And brethren, if they knew who we were, this place would be surrounded by paparazzi. And that is not to flatter ourselves, it is to flatter God who has regenerated us and made us His children. Your first birth puts you in a relationship to the first Adam. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15 last night, you know that that is a pretty hopeless situation. You are of the earth, earthy, and what's going to happen to you? You're going to return to earth, then you will return to stand before Him condemned in your first father Adam. But we are of the second man who is the Lord from heaven. Thank you, Lord, for such a change in us. This is the doctrine of the second birth or being born again, which Jesus declared for the first time to Nicodemus. We are given a new nature that we might become the sons of God in a vital way by having a nature within us that loves the things of God. And we live with both natures until He takes us out of this world. And so we have a conflict of priorities. Every single day of our lives, we war against the lusts of our flesh which after the first birth strive for the things of this world. And we get all wrapped up in jobs, in money, in health, in working out, in degrees, in marriage, in children, in cars, in toys, in trinkets, instead of thinking with our new man and putting on that new man that can be and will be restored and strengthened in might every day if we're walking by faith. Which is the lesson today, that we want to walk by faith. And the Lord will strengthen us by His power in verse 5 and keep us even through suffering, even through terrible events, even through martyrdom, as we have heard by our brother already this morning. Look at John 1.13 with me very quickly while you hold your hand at First Peter because we will be returning shortly. But look at John 1. We must teach everyone in our assembly the importance of this verse. The common way to use John 1, 12 and 13 is to quote only the first half of it. I memorized the first half of it as a child, never having heard the second half of it. John 1, 12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Which were born... This is what distinguishes us. Which were born. Those that believe present tense on His name were born. Which were born. And it tells us three ways in which they were not born and one way in which they were born. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
when it says they were born, and that birth is describing becoming the sons of God, which is mentioned back in verse 12, but the sentence should be read together to understand which operation occurs first, and that is God regenerating us as His children, then us believing on His name. No one will believe or receive the Lord Jesus Christ until God has regenerated Him, which were born not of blood. The Jews were guilty of blood regeneration. Blood regeneration meant that as long as you were born into the commonwealth of Israel and that you had true Jewish parents and a pedigree that could be traced back to Abraham, you were set for eternal life. Not of blood. Oh, the Pharisees had a rude awakening when they met John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Say not within yourselves that you have Abraham to be your father. God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That's what John the Baptist had to say, and that wasn't a very good pulpit manner to the religious leaders of his day that came out to hear him, but that's the truth of the Bible. So it's not of blood, nor is it the will of the flesh. Before you're born again, you've only got one thing going for you, one thing working on the inside, one thing working on the outside, your flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What you get from your first parents is a flesh nature. That which you get from the Spirit is a spiritual nature. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So before you're born again, you're in the flesh. Romans 8 tells us that those that are in the flesh cannot please God. They are not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So they're in the flesh. Now, John 1.13 says that we're born again not by the will of the flesh. So there is nothing that a man can do by his will in the flesh in order to become in the Spirit. That should be so obvious and so simple. It is not the will of the flesh. It does not matter what you persuade a child or an adult to do. It doesn't matter whether it's on their deathbed or at any other time. Anyone in the flesh, you cannot persuade them to do anything pleasing to God. And regeneration is not by the will of the flesh. Nor is it by the will of man. Godparents cannot stand in for a child. Parents cannot stand in for a child. The Roman Catholics have invented all kinds of heresies in order to try to make salvation as wide as they can for all of their children. But it's not the will of man. So it's no one else on your behalf. It's no priest. It's no pope. No priest can give you confession or absolution of your sins. There is no such thing as extreme unction except by Almighty God honoring the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and making us accepted in the Beloved. You want to talk about some extreme unction? Extreme unction is the amount of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ by Almighty God. It's not some little bottle of blessed holy chrism poured by a priest on a man in his deathbed. So it is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Then what is it by? But of God. Amen. Of God. God says, live. And dead sinners live. And we're born again. And we're given a new nature. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because our text has told us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again. We have been twice born. And that second birth is as a son of God. And as a son of God, your father will not lose a single one of his children. And your father has an eternal inheritance that we're going to get to soon that is reserved in heaven for you. We just need to get there. And if our hearts were right, death would not be the frightening thing that it is to most. 
the more we would think and muse and meditate upon these things and feed our souls with these things and comfort one another with these words, we would take courage and be looking forward to the time when we can depart from this. All death is is a departure of your spirit to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us, which is the text my father began with a long time ago this morning in the back room. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 We want to comfort ourselves with these things. We want to be looking forward to it. The Apostle Paul said, to die is gain. If you're thinking it's loss, something's wrong somewhere and it's not in the Bible. And it's not with Paul. And then he said two verses later, to depart to be with Christ is far better. Far better. If these things are true. They are true. They are true. Now what were we begotten again unto? Well, we were begotten again to be His sons. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. We have a hope that is living, lively, fruitful, productive, and will never perish. Our hope. Now, when it brings up hope, hope is an active word of our new man. So obviously we have reached the fourth phase of salvation or the practical phase for hope to be here in this verse. God has regenerated us unto a lively hope. The hope of a Christian is lively based on what follows next, and that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to keep these things in order, let me deal with hope first before we look at the resurrection. Our hope is lively because Christ is alive. Our Savior is living. Our Savior who did die, our Savior who was buried, is alive at the right hand of God. And as he told John in Revelation 1.18, I am alive forevermore. Now that's a lively hope. Because the first fruits, our older brother, our joint heir, has already gone through the curtain of death for us. He's already gone down into the ground, into a grave. He has already ripped the grave apart. He's already conquered death. His spirit has already been joined back to his body. And that body never saw corruption, but was made incorruptible. And the two of them put back together and he sits in heaven on a literal physical throne forever. And our hope is lively. Amen. When they tell you that you've only got a week to live, or you know, in a week you're going to die, you need to just reverse all of that. In a week, I'm going to start living. Amen. It is just a departure. Yes. Do you know how much worry you put into your first birth and your first arrival in this life? Do you know how do you know how much your worrying helped to get into this life? Your worrying isn't gonna it's just gonna hurt you getting into the next one because you're gonna be fearful all the way up to the moment that it happens until you see the Lord Jesus Christ and you hear these two words. Fear not. But you know we should be learning them now by going to Revelation chapter one where it says John fell at his feet as dead, and Jesus came over to him and said, Fear not, I am alive forevermore. The lively hope. 
These three verses, which I've read to you now a couple of times, I want you to notice how closely related they are to two verses that come later in this chapter, verses 20 and 21. I just want you to notice this little comparison to see how Peter liked to begin with God's operation in eternity and run it into the practical phase of salvation. Now, chapter 1 is all about the final phase of salvation. It's about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter likes to run all the way from the first phase, the eternal phase before the world began, into the practical phase and shows us our hope and our faith, which is part of the practical phase of salvation, which is us in our new man operating toward God. Look at verses 20 and 21. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by Him do believe in God. Notice, when we believe in God, it is by Him and His power that causes us to believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. That's where Jesus Christ is now, seated at the right hand of the glorious majesty on high that your faith and hope might be in God. See, from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, through the manifestation of Jesus Christ in His life on earth 2,000 years ago, and by God giving us faith, and God having raised up Jesus Christ, which we're about to get to in verse 3, and showing Him glory, our faith and hope should rest in God. Look at everything God has already done for our older brother. And by doing it for our older brother, who is the representative for each one of us that is God's elect, he's going to do it for us. So it's a lively hope that our faith and hope might be in God. Our hope is in the never-changing, immortal, eternal God. And in the never-changing Lord Jesus Christ. And in the hope of glory that is coming for us. Regeneration is not the lively hope, but it prepares and brings men to obtain hope in Christ. And brethren, the degree of hope that every believer has varies based on how closely they walk with God and keep in memory the things that they have been taught. When it says that we have been begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is not a guarantee that every Christian is going to have a lively hope. It means that God has given through the new birth the power for every Christian to have hope and He's raised Jesus Christ from the dead to make it a lively hope. But only those that remember the Word of God comfort one another with these words, stir up their minds, their pure minds by way of remembrance, will have that lively hope. The lively hope is dependent upon Christ. He's on His throne. But we can forget those things and we can be led astray by false teachers. Are you thinking of a church that I reminded you of last evening with one of your chapters to read that lost their hope in the resurrection? The church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul said, Now if Christ be raised from the dead, why are there some among you teaching that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Listen. 1 Corinthians 15.2 By which ye are saved... Nope, I'm going to turn you there because I want you to... It's too important. 1 Corinthians 15, the lively hope. We must help each other's lively hope. We must help each other's hope to be lively. That's why Paul said, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Can can words from each other help us have better hope? Yes. Because once we go outside these doors... When you hit the when you hit the next QT, is there going to be anyone at QT to remind you of our lively hope? No. no. If you stop by Barnes and Noble and get yourself a three hundred page New York Times, is there anything in it 
that's going to remind you of our lively hope? If you sit and watch television, is there anything about your lively hope? If you watch Joel, is there anything about your lively hope? His hope's in this world. Our hope's in the next world. Totally two different religions. If you sit with your flesh and listen to melancholy music and you let your mind operate on yourself, is it going to remind you of a lively hope? No, it is going to pull you down to depression and destruction. Your spirit and your heart are your worst enemies. God's spirit and God's heart and His Word is your best friend. We want to saturate ourselves with the Word of God and with each other. So let me say it for the fourth time, and it was said once in the back room, maybe twice, so that's six times. First Thessalonians 4.18, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, that we be not like others that have no hope. Because we want our hope to be lively and full and confident and sure. Certain, waiting for those things that are coming. First Corinthians 15, look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. That is 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul reminding the Corinthians in a letter that when he had been there for 18 months, he had preached the gospel unto them, they had received that gospel, and they stood in that gospel, his Pauline gospel. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. We understand these words that if you do not keep in memory Paul's gospel, you will lose your salvation. That is not your name in the book of life. That is not your eternal destiny. That is your hope in the resurrection of the dead so that you are not without hope like other people are. Because as the apostle goes on, he comes down to verse 19 and says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What you lose is the hope and joy of the gospel. The gospel is, may I remind you, glad tidings of good things. If we forget the glad tidings, or if we forget the good things, then we are of all men most miserable. Christianity as a religion without the future is despicable. It's miserable. We live a life of self-denial. There's little for us in this world. The great gifts are for us in the next world. And if we get things mixed up and put our hope in this world, our hope is always going to be disappointed. Everything is going to corrupt. Everything is defiled. And it all fades away. And there's no reservation made on earth that is kept except your one with death. We must keep our priorities in order. So when it says 1 Corinthians 15.2, Paul was not telling Corinthians that he had personally preached to and that he had seen them believe the gospel and be baptized, that they were going to lose eternal life, but they were going to lose their hope and joy in the gospel. And I want you to get that 19th verse again because it's so important. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Because that's a dying hope. If our hope in Christ is just for this life, and at death it goes away, that's a dying hope. Because it dies when you die. But our lively hope blasts right through the curtain of death, right on into glory. Until we meet the one who's already gone there before us, the first fruits of them that slept. Back to First Peter chapter 1. 
The gospel includes the wonderful message of future events for believers' great benefit. Think about some of these benefits, just a few of them. Jesus Christ coming back for you. Jesus Christ splitting open this atmosphere for you. what, What astronomy class do they teach that in? That the skies will be split open and Jesus Christ of Nazareth will appear with the host of heaven and mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on His enemies. But yet we sit through astronomy classes. Who is the bright and morning star? Who is the Son of Righteousness? What is real learning? It's in this book they've outlawed. That's why we come into this house to be reminded of things that we'll not be reminded of outside this house unless we take the time to read this Bible, to speak to one another, and to encourage each other in the things it describes. There are benefits that are fabulous and many. Jesus Christ coming for you. Resurrection of your body and that body being glorified into a new super body, into a spiritual body, into an honorable body, into a powerful body, described in 1 Corinthians 15. Your name being found in the book of life and declared to the universe that you're a child of God, redeemed by Christ, professed by the Lord Jesus Christ as His brother, all your enemies destroyed, including death, a new heaven and a new earth for you to reign in, and participation in the judgment of angels to get started. These are fabulous blessings and things that are glad tidings. Thank you, Lord. Hope. Hope. A person cannot have true hope without regeneration, but not all regenerate elect learn it. If I, if I am not faithful as your pastor on two counts, 1 Timothy 4.16, right there, by my oldest son, two counts. If I don't take heed to myself and lead this church with a proper holy life of a minister, and if I don't take heed to the doctrine, you will be lost. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Heed that first word. Take heed unto thyself. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Those two things. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. See, there's that word save again, brother. See, that word save It's just being used in a way of if a pastor's negligent and doesn't preach the whole truth, We lose our fellowship with God. We lose our joy of salvation. We lose our hope of the resurrection. We just lose, lose, lose. We lose fellowship with God because we're walking in the world. We're living carnal Christian lives. Lord, save us from such a loss of salvation. Hope. And so hope depends upon the the Word of God being preached out of this pulpit and us among ourselves talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our eternal inheritance with Him. The Bible describes the hope of the wicked as perishing. It dies with them. It dies all through their lives. You know, they love statements like, hope springs eternal. What in the world are they talking about? Every hope that they've ever had that has sprung eternal has died either during their life or when they died. All their hopes that didn't die before they die, die when they die. All the hopes of the wicked, every single one of them disappears. But not the lively hope of a believer. It's guaranteed and settled forever in heaven. Just don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Colossians 1.23 says we can be moved away from the hope of the gospel by getting too excited about your best life now. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Our lively hope is the certain expectation of eternal life by Jesus Christ's living example of already having it. 
we have a living example of it. Our lively hope is a living hope for we were quickened into new life that realizes that hope and lives it and it doesn't die with us. It's a lively hope because it goes right through the curtain of death with us into the presence of God. It's a fruitful hope for it shall never be disappointed like the hopes of the wicked. It's a lively hope because it's a productive hope because it has the power of two resurrections attached to it. Do you understand the two resurrections that are attached to your hope? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and your own resurrection to be a child of God. This epistle is called the Gospel of Hope because it emphasizes hope so much throughout it. What is hope to a believer? It is a certain expectation of what is coming. Look at Romans 8.23. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 has an interesting definition of hope for us. Hope is the expectation of something desired. Something you want, you expect it to happen. That's hope. Hope is desire combined with expectation. Hope is something you want to have happen in your life and you're expecting it to happen. So you hope for it. It's a little strong, it's, it's stronger and different than that foolish idea of hope that we have. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not even sure what I want, but I'm hoping for something better. Well, that's just so vague. It doesn't measure up as Bible hope. Here's Bible hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And not only they, that's talking about the rest of your creation, including your puppies and kittens. And this includes your flowers and trees. Everything is under the bondage of corruption. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. See, this is what we're waiting for. The resurrection of our bodies to be in heaven with our spirits, glorified forever with the Lord. We're waiting for this adoption. See, there's there's five phases of the adoption of sons. This is the last one. This is the last phase of adoption when our body is adopted by God. God wants our bodies in heaven, but our bodies are going to be glorified once they're there, and it's called the redemption of our body. So that's the fifth phase of redemption as well. You know, we were redeemed in the cross by being bought back from the penalty of sin, but our bodies are brought are bought back from corruption in the ground. So there's the last phase right there in that verse of adoption and redemption. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope. But hope that we are saved by hope. Well, what salvation is that? That's the practical salvation of waiting for these two things to take place in our lives. It's not getting our names in the book of life. It's not getting us elected before the foundation of the world. It's for the comfort of our souls now as we wait for something that we're expecting to have happen. Verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. If you can see something, it's not hope because you've already got it. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We're hoping for something that we can't see right now. We haven't seen the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't seen the new heavens and the new earth. We haven't seen the spirits of just men made perfect that are in heaven waiting for us. We haven't seen those things. But we're hoping for them, and so we with patience wait for them. Because we know they're going to come to pass, because it's a lively hope. It's a lively hope implanted life within us. Life at the right hand of God Almighty, because the Lord Jesus Christ is there on our behalf. He was raised from the dead into everlasting life, and so shall our bodies be. We hate preterism, and that doctrine that I preached against a couple of years ago in January, because for many reasons, but one reason is, it has no hope. Preterism is a school of Bible prophecy 
that says every single prophetic event described in the Bible took place in 70 A.D. Every single one of them. I am not mistaken. I'm not exaggerating. Full preterism says every single event. New heaven and a new earth. The judgment of the devil and casting him into the lake of fire. Um, the resurrection of the bodies. All those things took place in 70 A.D. One reason by which we despise that doctrine is because it takes away the hope of the believer. Because there is throughout the New Testament great hope held out for Gentiles. And Gentiles were not blessed by anything that happened in 70 A.D. except for the witness that the Lord Jesus Christ was truly king over His enemies. But there is hope for us. There is lots of hope for us. Paul laid that hope out for us. And so we we have no use for preterism and now, there's a 50-page document on our website for anyone that's interested about preterism and what we think of it. The devil has no hope, and so he manipulates his minions to do what they can to steal your hope. Do you understand that? The number one thing that I hate about Hollywood, the number one thing that I hate about Hollywood is not too much violence. It's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The number one thing I hate about Hollywood is its destruction of hope because there is no hope in anything they have ever produced. Everything is hopeless because the devil behind them is hopeless and they are hopeless. The devil has no hope. He knows exactly where he's going. Fear mongers use the media to provoke fear of everything from Ebola. Anybody here worried about Ebola? You're not a Christian. You're a foolish Christian. Why would you worry about Ebola? You're not going to stop it. God's going to stop it. The plague's not going to come nigh our dwelling place. And listen, what if it did? Hey, I got a brother! Yes, amen! Ebola. So I have the flu for two days and go to heaven. Wonderful! So I cough up a little blood in my spittle. Then I go to heaven. Now if we had the right attitude. See, they're always filling the world full of fear. Fear mongers use the media to provoke fear of everything from Ebola to cholesterol to asteroids to saturated fat to hurricanes to Y2K to North Korea to big banks. They're all out to get you. All those things are out to get you and a whole lot more that we don't have time to list. Hollywood entertainment, even life dramas never teach hope or a foundation for hope whatsoever. They will steal your hope. You can write me and tell me that I, I watched a movie, there wasn't any nudity, there wasn't any violence, and they didn't take the Lord's name in vain. No, they didn't take the Lord's name in vain. They never mentioned the Lord's name. Right. Therefore, it's a hopeless thing. And you have just corrupted your mind and your soul and your heart because you watch something that's hopeless. Instead, if you filled yourself with something that was full of hope, it would make you a real man. Right. There are no real men in Hollywood. They're all fantasies of depraved minds. And I could go on and on, but listen, brethren, hope is something you should guard with your might. We want to guard holiness by cutting out things that we watch, view, read, think about. But we want to protect hope in our lives. Because when our hope disappears, and if you get our children, you get our teenagers off of that hope that is set before them, and you get them lowered down to this sphere of things, they're going to leave us. Because I want to tell you something. Our faith 
and our religion and this church does not have anything for them on this sphere that they can recognize and see. They will be disappointed because life is full of disappointments on this level. But with that level kept in mind, life is wonderful. But with that level kept in mind, hope is not just hope of getting married. It's not just hope of having a better job. It is a hope that is way beyond that and way above that. It is hope of heaven and eternal glory with the Lord Jesus Christ as the sons of God. Let me go ahead and throw this in here right now about hope. If you had an uncle that you had never met, that had a letter put in your mailbox tomorrow, that had a minimum wage customer service rep at a bank called a notary, sign it, that that uncle had $10 million in store for you as an inheritance, and in order for you to fulfill a condition for the trustees to grant you that $10 million, all you had to do was wash your car daily. Do you know what all of you would be doing tomorrow morning at 4 a.m.? Do you know how sick that is? You want to see my notary? Do you want to see my letter? I have in writing that has stood the test of 3,500 years and has borne fruit and changed nations and changed lives and wrought durable riches wherever it's been followed Amen. in the Word of God. And it describes an inheritance that makes $10 million absolutely foolish. Right. When you get that $10 million, when the government gets done with its share, what are you going to have left? Let's drop that thing down to $5 million. Once everybody finds out that you have the five million that come along for a little piece of the action, what are you going to have left? About five hundred thousand. After you get that five hundred thousand and go buy yourself a six hundred thousand dollar house and find out that it costs so much to maintain that house, how much are you going to have left? It's just all vanity. And then lo and behold, you get cancer the next week and die. Even if you kept the whole ten million and it was given to you tax free. It's all but I'll tell you what you'd be doing tomorrow morning. And do you know what you'd be doing the next morning? And do you know what you'd be doing the next morning? You'd be washing your car and taking selfies. Oh, I just know about them. I've never done one. But you'd be out there taking selfies of you washing your car. Am I making sense to anyone? Amen. There's an inheritance that is mind-blowing in this one sentence. And we're going to get to it after our break. And it's not a rich uncle. It's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not according to his bank account, but according to his abundant mercy. By the way, his bank account, he owns all that is in the universe. And all things are yours. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians about chapter 3. All things are yours because of him. He's begotten us into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, God has done things to increase our hope, and he designed the gospel and the church to do so. Do you know that he swore with an oath so that you can have an anchor for your soul? Amen. And sure hope? Yep. So that by two immutable things, God made a promise. God swore with an oath. By two immutable things, Hebrews chapter 6, you can have hope that you have an inheritance coming. He did that so that you would have great hope. That's better than some little minimum wage notary signing off on the piece of paper that you have $10 million supposedly coming from some trustees of some bank that could fail this next week. But heaven never fails. And God never fails. And Jesus Christ never fails. And His Word never fails. God can cause you to abound in hope by believing by Holy Ghost power. Romans 15, 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 
that ye may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now it was abundant mercy that gave us hope, but you can abound in hope. You can have abundant hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. There's only one thing you need to do in Romans 15, 13 to fully access the power of God to increase your hope, your joy, and your peace. It says it in two words, just like we're going to have two words in verse 5. In verse 5, it's through faith. In Romans 15, 13, it's in believing. If you will believe what I'm telling you right now, you would believe that letter in your mailbox. Before you did anything, L, before you confirmed it, you would be out there with the hose. Don't, don't look at me and say that you're better than that. You'd be out there with the hose and a bucket and a sponge. If we believe this, there's a God in heaven that by the power of the Holy Ghost on the inside through our new man can cause us to abound in hope. Amen. We'll laugh at death. Just like Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and just like we want to. Lord, help us to this end. It's a lively hope. It changes lives. John saw the doctrine of adoption and hope of glorification as changing lives. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. If you understand the, in, the inheritance that you have coming, you will laugh at the sufferings of this life, for they are not to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans eight seventeen through 19. Six, six descriptions of economic failure in Habakkuk chapter 3. Yet I will rejoice in God, my Savior, for He will make my feet to dance in my high places. You know, the Bible says that men should ask us a reason of the hope that is within us, and we should be able to give them an answer. The reason for all of this and the basis for our hope is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most, I don't want to say the most important point of the doctrine of, of grace, but it is such an important fact. Without the resurrection, Jesus Christ is dead in the ground and we are still in our sins. First Corinthians 15 teaches we must have the resurrection. The resurrection just covers everything. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our sins did him in. But our sins didn't do him in. He rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the Old Testament is not true because they're called the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David are that his son would rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead but saw corruption, then Psalm 16 is not true and we can't trust a word in the Word of God. If the resurrection didn't happen, then baptism is ridiculous. 1 Corinthians 15.29 all, all parts of our religion fall down without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go through the book of Acts and you watch Paul preach, you will see that Peter and Paul preach about the resurrection, about the resurrection, about the resurrection, whether it's on the day of Pentecost or it's with the Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17 or it's with the Jewish rulers in Acts 28. It is about the resurrection. Paul says, I am called in question for the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Some little piece of sand in the Middle East? Do you know what the hope of Israel is? It is the resurrection of the dead. Taught throughout the book of Acts. All these premillennialists with their millennial kingdom trying to make that the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel is the resurrection from the dead. And guess what? The hope of Gentiles is the same. The resurrection from the dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ was raised first to guarantee that you're going to be raised from the dead. He's called the first fruits of them that slept. What are you called? The after fruits, the next fruits, the later fruits, the latter fruit, the latter harvest. But you're going. We're going. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith I can see it afar. Where the Father waits over the way. Are you ready to go? This sentence is too much for me. 
the resurrection from the dead. So let me read that first, that third verse to you again. I'm sorry that I'm not a good time manager. I have the material before me to take 13 sermons on 13 points out of this one sentence. But I have higher ambitions for our progress through the book of 1 Peter than that. But I don't have higher ambitions for my soul or your soul. Amen. I hope you will take time and go through those 13 expressions and meditate on them and slow down until you take each one and just hold it up to the... Wow, Lord. It, if this is... It is true. Right. Thus saith the Lord. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is no longer dead. Our bodies only sleep in the ground. It is a lively hope. We are going to be with Christ forever in heaven, glorified with Him just as Him, like Him. When we see Him, we'll be like Him. We're going to be made like Him. This is the promise of God's Word. I hope that we're convicted and condemned that if there was a $10 million notice in our mailbox, we'd be out there washing our car. What would you do to wash your hands and cleanse your hearts, ye sinners, and purify yourself for the Lord Jesus Christ so that we with confidence can look forward to His coming or the day of our death? We don't know which one of us is going next, but we should be ready to depart and to be with the Lord for it's far better than to be here. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.